Howdy everyone, so a couple of things, the first thing, uh, this episode can actually be broken down into seven different episodes, but ultimately I'm going to combine it into one bigger, longer episode, it won't actually end up being that long, uh, trust me, uh, for a couple of reasons, the first thing is I'm actually really tired, I, I, I need a break from law school, uh, we finished our last final yesterday, and so I am definitely in the break mode, so to speak, and ultimately, I am just ready to uh, get to work at a firm, and then take a moment away from law school, and then come back next fall semester and hit things running hard. Uh, Don't worry, things won't change as far as the podcast goes. There's quite a few things that I want to record on the podcast, Uh, a couple of announcements that'll come later. Won't worry about that, though. In this episode, uh, the second thing is that we are talking about contracts, and we have talked a lot about expectation damages. And this is still going to be talking about damages, but now we're moving into other kinds of damages. We're going to, in this episode, talk about non-recoverable damages, uh, remedies that are available underneath the UCC. We won't spend a ton of time there. And then we'll talk about reliance, specific performance, and agreed upon remedies. And then also, I guess we can say, uh, apart from the topic of damages, we'll talk about the rights and duties of third parties. Those will include uh, beneficiaries and then also assignment and delegation of those rights and duties. Uh, Those will kind of be more just subcategories that I won't spend a ton of time on. Ultimately, I'm just ready to uh, finish out this semester and do my due diligence in making sure I get all the content out there from the things that we have ended up talking about this past semester. So let's go ahead and start with non-recoverable damages. There are three main types of damages that are available. Uh, First, we have, uh, sorry, damages that are unavailable. Uh, Typically, these are going to include a plaintiff. I found this on Sorry, Siri got me there. Uh, typically, these are going to include plaintiff's attorney fees, uh, damages for mental distress, and then punitive damages. So let's go ahead and start with the attorney fees. Attorney fees typically are going to be non-recoverable. The American rule is that the winner is going to end up covering their expenses. This is kind of different from a lot of other places where the loser ends up covering the expenses of the winner in most other places. Uh, But attorney fees are only going to be recoverable if a statute or uh, a certain law authorizes a convention, agreement, foreign agreement, uh, or if the contract agrees to it, or if a court orders it, uh, such as sanctions. A court order could also award attorney fees. Second kind of non-recoverable damage is going to be emotional distress. Uh, This is going to typically be covered underneath tort law, not contract law. And so if you want to recover emotional distress, you're going to have to do it underneath a tort. So you're going to have to find a tort that is typically physical, that allows for emotional distress and to be recovered as well, for it to be attached to a contract cause of action, and the tort and the contract, the breach of the contract, actually need to be interrelated. 
And then we also talked about punitive damages. Generally, punitive, well, punitive damages are just not going to... be recoverable. Uh, restatement uh, 2D contract section 255 says that punitive damages are not recoverable for breach of contract unless the conduct constituting breach is also a tort for which punitive damages are recoverable. So ultimately, punitive damages and emotional distress kind of falls underneath the same things. and They need to be tied to tort law. So let's go ahead and talk about remedies that are available underneath the UCC. Uh, remedies that are going to be available to the buyer and then to the seller. Let's start with the buyer. Remedies that are available to the buyer are going to include cover, market damages, damages for accepted goods, specific performance, although limited, and then intentional and consequential damages. Cover is pretty much where you uh, sell a product. Well, so you buy a product and then you have to, let me, let me make sure I get this right. When a buyer covers, ultimately they are buying a product. It could be a, a defective product or, or a well, it's typically going to be a defective product. They buy the product, it's defective, but they accept it anyways. And then they have to go out and buy additional product to cover for what they actually needed. So ultimately, the damages that are going to be collected here are going to uh, be that material, that subtraction from what you had to pay versus what you accepted. Uh, market damages are going to be uh, pretty straightforward. We've talked about that before. It's so ultimately if you don't cover you have market damages as your alternative uh, you can collect You can collect if you uh, Choose not to cover up to the market value and then damages for accepted goods I mean that's pretty explicit in the name. You're just going to be recovering for damaged products that you accept. Uh, specific performance is going to be pretty limited. And the product needs to be pretty unique, either land or a very valuable. It, it, when it's underneath the UCC, it's got to be a pretty valuable object, uh, such as a painting or a sculpture, uh, things like that. And generally, specific performance is not available. But it is available in theory to buyers. Uh, the specific performance is not available in theory to sellers. And then you can also get incidental and consequential damages. As far as the seller's remedies go, they can do resell. Uh, so if uh, they sell it to a buyer, buyer refuses or sends the, goods the sends the goods back, then they can try and resell the product. Uh, typically at a discount so that they actually get the product taken and then collect the difference between the original contract price and the resale value. Market damages, again, same thing as available to the buyer. Lost profits, we've talked about this. This is the loss of volume seller that we've talked about in the mitigation of damages episode. 
and then seller's action for the price and seller's incidental and consequential damages. Let's talk about some alternatives to expectation damages, including reliance, uh, specific performance, and then agreed upon remedies, and that those agreed upon remedies are going to be considered liquidation clauses. So reliance and restitutionary damages. Uh, restitution is also known as quantum merit or something like that. It's ultimately it's to take back what the defendant or the breaching party wrongfully obtained. It's this idea of unjust enrichment, and you don't want people to be unjustly enriched, and so you can get damages based off of this. Uh, quantum merit it says, based on the failure of consideration, fraud, mistake, and situations where it would be morally wrong for one party to enrich himself at the expense of another, but it only lies where one party was unjustly enriched in the same sense that the word unjust can mean illegality or unlawfully. Restatement 371 uh, says that alternative means of quantifying restitutionary damages are going to be the reasonable value of the plaintiff's services and or and the value of the property as justice requires. Ultimately, we're just trying to avoid unjust enrichment. A specific performance, this is where you want to compel the breaching party to live up to their promise. Uh, in the UCC, applying to goods, this is only going to be very unique products. Typically, otherwise, it's going to be uh, limited to lands or goods, uh, land or contracts that are very unique. And land and houses are one of those things where it is unique. Other than that, specific performance doesn't usually happen. Uh, we have a case here. Uh, called City Stores Co. versus Amron. Uh, this was a store that wanted to be a part of a mall, but things didn't work out quite so well for them. Uh, the contract was breached. They weren't able to be a part of it, and now they're suing, saying, let us be a part of your mall. So how do you actually get specific performance based off of this? Well, first, the terms of the contract must be sufficiently surf certain and definite for specific performance to apply. That means you have to at least have enough information to compel the other party to do it. Uh, this is going to be true even if the contract is lacking some of those terms uh, because those terms can be negotiated later and uh, the court could compel them to negotiate with good faith. Uh, the second thing is that other forms of remedy are going to be inadequate and to put the plaintiff in the same position. Uh, this is getting to the idea of the unique factor. Uh, monetary damages are not going to be sufficient to put the party in as good of a position. Other factors that the courts are going to consider is difficulty of uh, court being able to oversee the actual performance occurring, and then if there's an unreasonable hardship to the party that was breaching. As mentioned, specific performance is going to be pretty disfavored, and it's only going to be applied in those circumstances, that three-part element mentioned just previously. Uh, restatement second of contracts uh, says, uh, section 367, subsection 1, says a promise to render personal services will not be specifically enforced. That means a personal service contract is not going to end up meriting 
uh, specific performance. And what that means, if I contract to paint your house, I don't paint your house, you can't force me to paint your house because that's a personal service contract. Uh, let's talk about agreed remedies now. These are remedies where you write it into the contract to actually say, if this contract is breached, this party agrees to recover, uh, to pay this much in damages. And this is a good way of trying to stay out of the court. Obviously, it didn't happen in this situation that we're talking about in this upcoming case. But ultimately, there are a few methods of agreed remedies. The first is going to be settlement. Uh, the second is going to stipulate those damages after breach, and that's going to be uh, the uh, whether you... Yeah, and then the third is going to draft a clause into the original contract outlining the cost of damages for the breach. That was the thing that I had mentioned at the beginning of this section. And this final method, in theory, saves the court and parties a lot of considerable time in litigation, but the courts are actually going to generally disfavor this kind of solution because there's actually it's really hard to tell how much damages are actually going to be there. So we have a case here, Barry Skull versus Patch. This was an enrollment issue. Uh, Patch had their daughter enrolled in the school and ultimately withdrew their daughter from the school, but they didn't do it with, en with enough notice to put the school to fill the seat. Uh, the school eventually did fill the seat, and they actually had more students enrolled than what they had originally. But there's a liquidation damages clause in there saying, if you don't provide us notice of your withdrawal within this amount of time, then you agree to pay the full year's tuition. That's the liquidation damages clause. And so it's ultimately a matter of figuring out, is this a penalty or is it compensation? And so it's, it kind of goes back to that idea of a loss of volume seller. If it's a penalty, the courts are not going to enjoy this a liquidation damages clause, but if it's to compensate the court for a circumstance where they might not be able to otherwise get those damages, then the courts are going to be more fine with that compensation. As far as the mitigation and damages go, there is no requirement to mitigate damages in this situation because, I mean, this whole purpose of the clause is to avoid that calculation of how to mitigate damages. So what are the actual elements to say whether or not a liquidation clause is going to be fine? We have restatement section 365 subsection 1. There are three elements here. Uh, first, the anticipated damages are going to be uncertain or incapable of an exact ascertainment. Uh, the second element is that the, unless the amount is excessive, grossly excessive and out of all proportions to the damages that might reasonably have been expected from a breach, and then we're going to consider the reasonableness is going to be judged at the time of the contract formation and not at the time of the breach. And then we're going, the third part of this is if it turns out that the liquidation damages are actually higher than the actual damages, uh, the liquidation damages are still going to be enforced unless if it was used as a penalty.
So let's go ahead and talk about the rights and duties of third parties. We just finished all our damages. This is kind of shifting gears. I probably should end up closing this off and start a second episode, but I'm not going to. Like I said, I'm just ready to finish it up and call it good. So the rights and duties of third parties. Well, what are some of the Benef uh, what are some of the benefits that come to third-party beneficiaries? There are two different kinds of beneficiaries that I want to mention. First, you have a creditor beneficiary, and second, you have a donor beneficiary. A creditor beneficiary, ultimately, let's just work through a hypothetical, very simple hypothetical. A is going to owe money to B, and B owes money to C. In this situation, A and B are going to contract that A is going to pay C directly rather than through B. So ultimately, we're cutting out the middleman. This is going to be the creditor beneficiary. C is owed money from B, and so A is just going to pay C instead of B, A paying B and then B paying C. A donor beneficiary is where A promises B that they are going to do something that is going to benefit C. In this case, C is a donor beneficiary who is able to go to the court and collect directly from A. And there's no middleman in that situation. The restatement second in contract, section 302, says, Unless otherwise agree between promiser and promisee, a beneficiary of a promise is an intended beneficiary if recognition of a right to performance in the beneficiary is appropriate to effectuate the intentions of the parties and either the performance of the promise will satisfy an obligation of the promisee and to pay money to the promisor, sorry, to the beneficiary, that's going to be the creditor, or the circumstances indicate that the promise, that the promisee intends to give the beneficiary the benefit of the prom, promised performance. And so that's going to be the donee. So ultimately, we're looking at what is the intention of the parties? Uh, is the party intended to be a beneficiary? Are they intended to receive, uh, to be an intended beneficiary or a as I guess, an incidental beneficiary? And that's really where our case comes into play, Chen versus Chen. This was a divorce situation where the daughter ended up wanting to uh, collect child support from the father because the father ended up getting higher pay but didn't pay higher child support, and it was like that for a while. So she turned 18, and so she's trying to hop onto this case to collect money from her dad in behalf of her mom. Mom drops out of the case, who was the original suing party. And so ultimately, is a question of, is this daughter, as a beneficiary, able to collect damages from her father, uh, these child support damages? The answer in this court is going to be no. And the reason why is because even though she is a beneficiary, She's not an intended beneficiary. She is an incidental beneficiary. What that means is the money was intended to go directly to the mother and to it for the benefit of the daughter, but ultimately the money was going to the mother, not the daughter. And so in that situation, the daughter is not an intended beneficiary, but she is an incidental beneficiary. Let's talk about the assignment and delegations of rights and duties. The assignment of rights is underneath the restatement uh, to the contract, section 317. 
and uh, 322. 317 ultimately just says that the assignment's rights to performance is going to be extinguished in whole or in part, and the assignee acquires right to such performance. Typically, these rights include the right to pay money, and a good example of this is going to be a debt collector. So, let me just rephrase everything that I just said. A owes B money. B owes C money. B assigns C the rights to collect the money that B needs to that A needs to pay B. So ultimately B is assigning that right to C and lets A know and A should directly pay C. Rights are going to be assignable unless they are going to materially change the duty of the obligor, that's A. If they're going to materially increase the cost or risk, three, if they're going to impair return performance, or four, if they're going to materially reduce value, or five, if it's barred by law, public policy, or contract. Uh, typically, these right, assignment of rights are going to involve money collection. But Restatement Second and Contract, Section 322, says when an assignment cannot occur. Which I actually didn't say when it couldn't occur. My notes underneath it are related to a case that I didn't write in. So we're going to end up skipping that part. I apologize for that. Let's talk about the delegation of duties. This is going to be underneath Section 318. And Section 318 ultimately just says that delegation can occur unless it's barred by public policy or contract. Additionally, performance by a particular party is required only if the obligee has a substantial interest in having that person perform. Uh, this situation is typically met when there are going to be personal service contracts and Additionally, the ability to delegate does not mean that the obligator no longer has any liability because he still could be liable if the person does if the person who has the rights delegate uh, sorry the duties delegated to them if they don't perform then the delegator you can say is still going to be liable for that lack of performance. Now that I say that, I think I got something really wrong on the final. <laughs> um, anyways, so delegation ultimately means it can happen unless it's barred by public policy or contract. And if you delegate and the per party still has to, sorry, if you delegate, and then you are still going to be liable for performance if that delegation is not done properly. So that's everything. That's contracts all wrapped up. Hope you enjoyed it. It's been a good semester. I'm ready for that break. 
Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials, and the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice, and with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.